We're going to continue on. We've been going through the ten gates of Nehemiah. The ten gates are symbolic of things in the Christian life. Actually, I believe they're symbolic of things in this Christian body's life as well. And not only the gates themselves, but I believe the order matters. This is where we are for those of you who've maybe come in for the first time or if you've missed a week or two. Here's where we start with the sheep gate. That's where you hear the shepherd's call. The fish gate where God shows his miracles in your lives. The old gate is where we come to reconcile with the law and God's commandments and understand the law is there to protect us, uh, not to prohibit us. And then we went out through the wilderness to come back through the valley gate. That was last week. was talking a little bit about the wilderness and what it's all about. So where are we this week? Well, let me, let me show you Nehemiah. They built a thousand cubits of the wall to the... Now, I know that looks like refuse gate. Like we're talking about the refuse gate. What's that? We just refuse to go through it. That's the wrong pronunciation of this word. It's the refuse gate, right? Uh, so uh, Malachijah, the son, the son of Rechab, uh, the official of the district of Beth Haradim, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. I find it interesting, by the way. This guy does it all alone. If you know what the refuse gate is, it's probably not a big surprise. Some of the other ones, they had this whole people, you know, they have, you know, people joining in. One even has daughters come and help, a perfumer. The perfumer did not work on this gate, let me tell you. Because when you think about it, you say, what is the refuse gate? It's probably what you think it is. Let me show you a picture. This is a screenshot from a picture taken in Jerusalem. And they have the refuse gate there. Or they don't call it the refuse gate. They call it by its real name, the dung gate. This is that gate. Uh, so basically, we're talking about the area where, you know, it doesn't smell so nice. Garbage. Really wonderful idea. What an incredible smell you've discovered. Welcome to the Dung Gate. Right? So that's what it is. Now, I usually don't might like to brag, but <clears throat> I consider myself somewhat an expert on this matter. Uh, not because I'm some kind of an exemplary Christian, but for those of you who know my story, uh, I have this problem with a septic system. Uh, so I am pretty much an expert on Dung Gates and why they, they're needed and why they weren't. My, my septic tank, just in a nutshell, uh, was good enough to pass a house inspection, but not good enough to handle four people living there. So um, we have issues when it rains like it did recently uh, and I get the dung gate uh, kind of turning the wrong way. Uh, now I'm going to tell you everything I know about the dung gate because it basically it is in, in a way it's kind of the, the, the the sewage, the exports, the export gate of, of Jerusalem is what it is for. It's what, what you think it's for. So I'm going to tell you everything I've learned about the dung gate from living with a septic system that doesn't work. They're actually designed to only go one way. <laughs> and as long as they're only going one way, everything is fine. Uh, when they turn around and come back the other way, things aren't good. Uh, we had that happen again recently. So uh, that is a problem. But here's something that probably, you know, you've got this in your mind already, but I'm going to kind of be a little bit uh, specific about this, and I know this is going to be a weird sermon. I mean, we're preaching about dung gate. Get ready. But uh, just the idea is that this refuse gate is to get the dung as far from you as possible. Yeah. That kind of makes sense, you know. Uh, again, from someone who's de dealt with that, I wish I could get it further from me. Than, you know, it, the further the dung gets, the better off you are. But here's what dung represents in our life. It represents the things in our life that we need to get rid of. See, without going into the details, and this isn't a biology class, and it kind of gets gross and disgusting if you get too, too much of the details, but the idea of the refuse of you is it needs to exit and needs to get out of your life. And if it doesn't, 
it actually turns into poison. I don't know if anybody who's ever taken care of somebody or knows somebody who's in a hospital, but if they're in a hospital laying around a lot, sometimes it, it impacts the ability to get some of that out of the system, and it actually starts concerning the doctors greatly, because if they can't get it out, it actually turns into poison. It's waste, right? It's things that we don't need in our lives, and it should be getting out of our bodies, and if it doesn't get out of our body, it actually turns into poison and, and can make you very, very sick. You need to get it out. Here's the, the weird thing, is that oftentimes, Christians uh, have this stuff that's just waste in their life that doesn't belong there and they know it doesn't belong there and yet for some reason we can't seem to get rid of it and it stays. And you know what happens when dung stays. It starts stinking after a while. And that's actually what kind of starts happening in our lives. We, we have these lives that are okay, except we can't seem to get rid of the things that are poisoning us. And we need to learn how to deal with this. God knows how to deal with the sin in our lives. He tells us that. He says, as far as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. Now watch what he does with this. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. God takes your sin and throws it as far as the east is from the west. That's a very, very far way. He knows what to do with sin. For some reason, we kind of hang on to it. But he doesn't. When he sees our sin in our life and we, he forgives us, he throws it as far as the east is from the west. He gets as far away from him and us as he can. Our problem is we kind of want to hang on to it. And we say, well, we'll deal with it. You know, we'll take this and we'll deal with it. And if, if you picture dung, I, I know it's gross, but if you picture your sin in your life as dung in your life that you're holding on to, it gives you a better picture of how God sees it. You know, sometimes we can like think, oh, it's really not that bad. Yeah, think about holding on to dung and then tell me how bad that is, right? It's like, kind of give you a new vision on this, I hope, because that that's what, that's what the imagery is here. We're not supposed to keep sin under our control. We're not supposed to keep sin hidden. We're supposed to repent of it and get it out of our lives. We're supposed to get rid of it. Now, I'm not trying to tell you work harder to get rid of it. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is we need to cast it away from us. How do we do that? Because I know sometimes we have sin in our life that keeps coming back. We want it gone, but it keeps coming back. And, and we have some kind of habitual sins that we can't seem to break the habit of. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's some other kind of addiction like porn. But I can't get it out of my life. And you want it to get it out of your life and you can't and you keep trying. Well, I'm telling you one of the reasons is because you're trying to hide it. You're keeping it secret. As long as sin is secret and hidden in the darkness... It can always come back. You need to expose it to the light. And one of the things we need to do there is we need to simply go to God honestly and say, "This I know what this is. I know what this looks like to you. I want it out. There's a scripture that we actually have talked about a lot, but this scripture has more meanings, I think, than we know. Uh, it's this, cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Now, we always think about that as the struggles in our life, don't we? Our burden is this thing that's bearing me down. And I'm not saying it's not about that. This verse is about that, but it's about more than that. I did a study on this. This is interesting. This word here, burden, that's used here in the psalm never appears anywhere else in the Bible. Ever. This is the only place it's used. And it literally means the thing you carry. The thing you're bringing. Right? And that's why it gets translated as bur burden. So cast the thing that you're giving. Or almost cast the thing you're casting. Is, is almost the exact translation of it. And, and cast it upon the Lord. That's not just things that are weighing you down. Worries. That's how we think about burdens, you know. I have a situation at, at my job, at work, and that's a burden. I have a situation in my family, that's a burden. We think of those as burdens. But this is more than that. This is anything you're carrying. I've said this before. God calls us sheep, not donkeys. We are not supposed to be 
burden-bearing animals. That's not who we are. You know, the whole thing starts at the sheep gate. We're sheep. We're not donkeys. We're not supposed to have any burden. If sin is a burden to you, you need to cast it to the Lord. Because he'll pick it up and throw it as far as the east is from the west. We need to bring God into this. And we actually need to bring each other into this as well. Because the Bible says that you confess your sins to one another. And that's how we will receive forgiveness plus healing. Is when we're confessing our sins to one another. If you're hiding your sin, it has power. Anything in the dark has power. You need to expose the sin to light. Starting with the light of God. And then if he tells you to reveal it to somebody else so you can be held accountable, you need to do it. The reason sin has power of us is we let it. And the reason we let it is because we hide it. You're not supposed to hide your dung. You're supposed to get rid of it. Um, so this also shows up in Isaiah. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. This could also be translated iniquity. Like sheep, we've gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. But the Lord caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. He's saying, I can handle it. Give it to me. Whatever that is, whatever that is in your life that's kind of keeping you from, from moving forward, give it to me. Expose it to light. We'll kill it. We'll get it out of your life. But we're trying to do it ourselves. I'll just try harder. And we're not telling anybody. We're keeping it a secret. And that sin will maintain its power over us because we're not letting it out. Right? We're trying to hide the dung. We're not trying to get rid of it. Now here's the dangerous thing about this. I've talked about how these are going in order. Um, this is probably the most critical gate we're going to go through because this changes everything. We start up here at the very top. I don't know if you ever saw this is a map of Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem that they rebuilt. Starts at the top, the Sheep Gate. Now you'll notice that we're going counterclockwise. Now if you knew this, but in Hebrew they read backwards. Right? So they're counterclockwise. This is really kind of brilliant. This is how Nehemiah wrote it, but naturally he would. Right? He goes from right to left. So he's going from right to left. The sheep gate, the fish gate, these are all in order. Right? The old gate, and then we have this long stretch of wilderness before we get to the valley gate. And you kind of see how God set all this up. And then we come to the dung gate, number five. This is the worst gate because we have to face what our sin really looks like in our life. Uh, I've told this story before, I think, but uh, there's, a, there's a gentleman that I actually have a lot of respect for. His name's Dr. Ferguson. He has a ministry uh, for uh, married couples that I went through many years ago. And uh, he has this little video, and he's talking about how he and his wife got in this fight. Ironically, he was in the middle of writing a book on marriage. <laughs> and his wife got this big fight, you know, and he storms off to go to, to go to his study at the church to write on the book of marriage, angry at his wife. His wife's angry at him, you know, and he goes there. And he's praying to the Lord. He says, you know, you need to do something with this woman you gave me uh, because she's ruining me. I'm trying to write about marriage and she's ruining this whole thing, you know, with, with her attitude. And um, he has, you know, because he's a speaker and he's a doctor and he's educated, he has the ability to, as some of us have, twist words, you know, and kind of turn him back against the person. Um, boy, it'd be terrible if somebody did that, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> some people seem to have that ability, though, to kind of turn him back on people. And he had done that to his wife to make it look like this was all her fault. Everything was her fault, and he'd done a very good job of that. And then he went off righteously, and he's sitting in his study, and he's, he can't write. He's too upset. So he goes and he prays. And he's basically, God, give me peace or whatever. I need to know what to do. You know, I need to get this agitation out of my life. And he felt God speak to him and says, you need to call your wife, and you need to apologize. He says, what on earth would I do that for? You know, she was clearly wrong. He says, no, you did this that you know you do, and you twisted it back on her, and you hurt her very deeply, and, and you need... To apologize. He says, okay, I'll do that when I get home. He says, no, I need you to do it right now. 
He said, I, I, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to write a book on marriage. I don't think that's a good idea. And God said, I need you to do it. And he said, why? He said, because I need you to understand that that sin you're holding on to is what put my son on the cross. That sin. Right? And, and, and when we start understanding the cost of sin, and when we really understand the cost of sin, we start understanding why the dung has to go. We can't hold on to it, you know, because we're fond of it. It's been around for a long time. I like it. But we get here, and we get to this point. And the funny thing is, a lot of times, we just can't seem to get through this one. By the way, this is not the gate that you come in. You go out the dung gate, because dung gates should go out. But the, the reason we can't seem to make it any further than this is because there's something in our lives we just won't let go of. You know, whether it's a sin we're hiding, whether it's an addiction, whether it's whatever, we just, or maybe it's something we kind of like. And we're saying it embarrasses us, or we're saying, I know I shouldn't do that. I know people with violent tempers like that. Oh, I have a bad temper. But you listen to them talk about it, they're proud of it. They almost brag about their violent temper and what they do when they're caught up in it. And it's like, you're not really repenting of this, you're kind of bragging of it. And sometimes we just seem proud of our sin. It's weird, but sometimes we just can't seem to let go. And I hope you understand I'm saying we here, right? I'm not saying you. I'm saying we. I have this, this struggle too. But here's the problem. If you don't make it through this gate, here's what happens. You walk back out in the wilderness and start over. And you don't get to start over at the valley gate. Mm -mm. You'll wander in the wilderness until you hear a shepherd's call again and start over at the sheep gate. And it all goes through again. I know Christians their whole life that never make it past this gate. So tell me if this sounds familiar. You hear God clearly. It's like, man, God spoke to me. I heard him. And then, then you see God's, like God's revealing himself in your life. Like it's personal. Oh, yeah, this is great. And then you come to the Bible and you think, okay, you know what? I understand I'm sinful. I'm going I'm to repent of that sin. So, you know, we're going through the gates here. You just been through the old gate. And then maybe you go out and God takes you to the wilderness. And, man, what's going on, God? Nothing's happening. Then, then you hear the voice of God again. And it's clearer than you've ever heard it because he took you into the wilderness for that purpose to reduce all distractions. And you hear him. It's like, Oh, I'm ready to move to the next level in my life with the Lord. This is great. And then we come here, and he convicts you of this hidden sin that you thought nobody knew, but he knows. You say, I can't do that. And all of a sudden, you're wandering again, and you start over. And I know so many Christians, this is their whole life. They never get out of this cycle. Hearing God, seeing his thing, coming to the law, coming back down through the wilderness, being convicted, going back out, hearing God, and just the whole thing. The cycle just never, ever ends because they can't get past this gate. The next gate, by the way, is good. That's why I blanked it. So you can't see it. The next gate's good. We have to get through this gate first, though. We have to start getting the junk out of our lives that's keeping us from having a relationship with our Heavenly Father. We have to be honest about this. We have to come to this and say, I know it's there. I want it gone. I will do whatever it takes to get it gone. You know, we, uh, we went through the Celebrate Recovery class in, in the Thursday class, and they talk about how addicts oftentimes uh, come to you and they say they want to get the addiction out of their lives. But until that addict's willing to do anything to get rid of the addiction, they're not ready to get rid of the addiction. Because the addiction has a hold on them, and anything at all will pull them away. And so they said, you have to be careful. Don't waste your time on somebody who's not ready to do anything to get rid of this. A lot of people say we want to get rid of things, but we're not willing to really pay the price. You know, I really, really, really want to get in shape. You know, Stats gets up in the morning and goes to the gym at 5.30. I don't want to get in shape that much. You know, I, I do, but not that much. You know, is there some other way? 
Can I just walk to the fridge more times? Is there some other way, maybe, that I can get in shape? You know, maybe we'll put the fridge upstairs. I have to walk upstairs. Something, you know, come up someplace. If we're ready to do anything, God can work with us. But when we're still holding on to this, uh, all of a sudden, uh, we, we find ourselves back out in the wilderness waiting to hear the shepherd's call and starting over. Now, some people have asked, because I get asked this question sometimes, well, does that mean this person's not really a Christian? Okay, I'm just going to say categorically, I don't know. And those of you who have been here for a little while, you'll know that uh, about me. I never play that game. I used to. When I was 20, I knew everybody who was going to heaven and everybody who was going to hell. Boy, I knew them all. You know, I could tell you by looking at them if they're going to heaven or going to hell. Um, I gave up on that a long time ago. Oh. When I started realizing in my 30s, maybe I'm the one going to hell, I started, you know, maybe I should stop with all this judgmental stuff. And so, there's only three things that I absolutely positively know about heaven. And this is it. And so, if you ever ask me, this is always my answer, just to save you some time. Number one, there are going to be people in heaven that are going to shock me. Because Jesus tells me that. Number two, there's going to be people who aren't in heaven that's going to shock me. Because Jesus tells me that. Number three, I'll be in heaven. Because Jesus tells me that. That's it. That's all I know about heaven. That's all I can tell you. I don't have the, rope, you know, the little velvet rope to see who gets in the club and not. That's not me. That's Jesus. What I do know is it'll be just, it'll be fair, and it'll surprise me. And I've learned to be okay with that because it's all about your personal walk with the Lord. So if I were to guess, I would say these are Christian people. They're safe, but they're never going to live in the fullness. They're never going to see the destiny. They're never going to see the vision of God revealed in their lives. They're going to live a little bit unsatisfied and wondering sometimes why they're even a Christian because it seems like, man, everybody else is having a lot more fun than me. That's because you've never learned to have joy. If we don't get past this gate, we'll never get there. And so we'll kind of live this kind of meandering, frustrating Christian life. Probably Christian. I'm probably going to, they're probably going to heaven. I probably are. But man, getting stuck at the dung gate's tough. You know? Um, so, boy, this is great. So there's all kinds of stuff that could be in our life. If only there was some kind of a list, you know? It'd be great if there was a list somewhere in the Bible that would tell you the kind of stuff that's keeping us there. Oh, wait, there is. Uh, it actually shows up in Galatians. So Paul in Galatians writing about the fruits of the Spirit, and then he kind of writes about the anti-fruits of the Spirit, or maybe another way to put it is the fruits of the other Spirit. And so he talks about this. He goes, look, I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. I was talking to somebody yesterday, and they, they, um, I felt, felt for her. She was talking about her father's an alcohol left before she was born. And she said, I know I'm supposed to honor my father. I don't know if I can. I mean, I just, I just can't. How can I honor that man? And I want to, but I can't. What should I do? And my answer to her was pretty much Paul's answer. Get closer to Jesus. If it's important to him, he'll, make, he'll give you the grace and the faith to do that. And if it's not important, what are you worried about? It's just, you just need to draw into Jesus. We need to get closer to Jesus as a secret. You don't have to work harder to do something. Just get closer to Jesus. Just get rid of everything between you and Jesus and get as close as you can. And when you're as close as you can, you'll find you could do all kinds of things you didn't think you could. My wife is such an introvert that she hated meeting new people. We opened a church. <laughs> and when we opened the church, I did the music plus a sermon, which means I was busy from like the moment we got here to the time it was over. And she knew, when we opened the doors, that she was going to greet people because that was her job. She was terrified of this. Really terrified. I mean, you guys don't know this, but she used to go in the bathroom and shake, praying, and literally, literally shaking, so afraid of meeting new people that came in. Um, but she drew closer to God, and I bet a lot of you are really shocked to hear that because the first person you met when you walked through the door was Victoria, and she didn't seem nervous at all. Well, she's not now. Right? God gives us the grace to accomplish what the task he gives us to do. If, if somebody had told her, you're going to have to do this, she was scared. But Jesus just kind of took her in her arms, and all of a sudden she goes, you know what? 
I can do this. Have you ever seen a little kid? Uh, we had this happen. I was a Sunday school teacher once, many, many years ago. And there's this one little girl in our class who was a little bit shy. And we had, this is a mega church, so we actually had an indoor um, slide in our, in our Sunday school class. Uh, we don't have one of those over there, parents, in case you didn't know. But it was actually it was like, a, like a jungle gym right in the middle of the Sunday school cl- classroom. And all the kids were like sliding down it. And this little girl really wanted to do it, you know. And so her mom was there. And she goes, come on, I'll be here. And so she like climbed up the top of the stairs. And she goes, no, no, she wouldn't do it. Uh, and just then, Dad walked through the door. And she sees him, Daddy! And then Mom turned to me and says, here she goes. Her courage just walked through the door. And right down that slide. Because Daddy came over to catch her. There's something sometimes about, you know, Daddy's arms around you. There's something about when Jesus puts his arms around you. He says, you know what? I can do this. I can. I can do this. And we just need to draw in closer to Jesus. And that's what, that's what he's saying. The Spirit will help you. Don't worry about it. When you're trying to do it in your flesh, it's not going to work. The flesh isn't going to work against itself. You're trying to do it in your own power and your own strength. You realize you're trying to turn the flesh against the flesh. It's isometric. You're not going to get anywhere. You know, it's the old Charles, Charles Atlas method of building muscles. Isometric. He's just pushing against each other. You need to bring the Spirit into it. Don't flesh against flesh. You need the Spirit. The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things you please. But if you're led by the Spirit, then you're not under law. And the deeds of the flesh are evident. Here's your list. Um, They are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, Outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and in case your favorite sin's not on the list, he says, and the like. So insert your favorite sin here, right? Um, so the thing is that sometimes we look at some of these like, you know, that's not so bad. You know, we kind of look at some of the sins and are like, eh. It's okay. I know people are a lot worse than me. You know, yeah, okay, maybe I do have outbursts of wrath, but not as much as my father did. Yeah, actually, my father didn't. But, you know, I'm just saying selfish ambition. Well, you need that to get ahead. So you need some of that in your life. And so we started to look at these. We're kind of like, I don't know. That's not so bad. I have had people tell me that about pornography. They're literally addicted to porn. They don't see it. And they'll tell me, eh, you know, victimless sin. Victimless sin, there's no such thing as a victimless sin, just so you know. Because you're always the victim of sin. Your relationship with your Heavenly Father is the victim of sin. There's a, there's a scripture, and Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit with your sin. I don't know if anybody's been through grief. We've lost somebody close to you. And we have a whole program called Grief Share to help people get through that. But when you're grieving somebody, you withdraw I mean, it's a kind of natural grieving process. You kind of pull away. And what he's actually paying a picture of what your sin does to the Holy Spirit. He's, he, he, he's sad. He lost you for a moment. He lost you during your sin. Your relationship was broken during the sin. And he's grieving over losing you. And I don't know if you've ever seen anybody inconsolable in grief. I have. It's not pretty. And Paul's saying that's what happens with the Holy Spirit when you sin. There's no such thing as a victimless crime. You broke the heart of the Holy Spirit. You broke your relationship with the living God. There's, there's no such thing as victimless. All this little stuff in our lives is keeping us from living the life we're supposed to. And so um, he says, look, okay, everything can be allowed because we get caught up in, but I'm freedom in Christ. You know, I can do anything. He says, everything might be allowed, but not all things are beneficial. How about stop trying to figure out what I can get away with and still get to heaven? Because that's kind of the question I get asked sometimes. It doesn't, no one's that honest. No one ever says, hey, preacher, I just want to know how much sin can I, can I get away with and still make it to heaven? 
they don't usually ask it that way, but that's kind of what they're asking. You know, is this okay? Can I, if I do this and this, is that okay? You know, it's really funny. When Charles Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic, I'm a big aviation fan, so this is a big thing to me. When he crossed the Atlantic, no one thought it could be done. And, and so he went and he got this one plane that he thought they could make that would make it. You know, he kind of did his research. And they were trying to figure out what sized engine to put in it. And there's a lot of calculations that go into that. But never once did Charles Lindbergh say, I want the smallest engine possible to still make it. You know, can we cut it down smaller? No, no, no. He's like, I want the biggest engine I can get. Give me the biggest. I want to make sure I'm going to get there. Don't, let's not cut it close. <laughs> let's not see. Oh. Our calculations were off. There was a headwind. Whoops. Sorry. You'll be landing in the English Channel. No. He's like, I want the biggest engine you can give me with the biggest gas tank because I know it's a long way. Right? And somebody but I just want to know how much sin I can get away with and still make it to heaven. That's not how it works. He says, look, um, all things are lawful, but I will not be brought into the power of anything. So I'm not going to let my desires rule me. He says, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. The Lord, and for the Lord, the body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one now with her in the flesh? For the two, he says, shall become one. But he who is joined to the Lord is one with spirit. So flee. That means run away from as fast as you can. Sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside the body is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against himself. You're always, always the victim. Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God, and, whom, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. That sin's why Jesus is on the cross. You're bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So, my question is, what's your favorite sin? We've all got one. And there's, there's something in our lives that we know we should get rid of, but we just can't seem to get rid of. It's dung, and it needs to go. So in, in some transparency, I want to talk a little bit uh, today about one of my favorite sins. Not all of them. That would be a very long sermon. Could hold, do a whole series on them. I'm going to talk about one today. Uh, but I'm going to be you know, dishonest because this is something I struggle with. Uh, and that, I'm going to show you the scripture which, which just definitely calls us a sin first. This is from James uh, chapter 3. Dear Christians, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive stricter judgment. Yeah, now he tells me. You know, okay. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to control the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and they turn the whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are large and driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire in a world of iniquity. He says, the tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. It sets on fire the curse of nature, and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is unruly evil, full of deadly poison. That's what we say, right? They're saying this is what this is what kills. This is he says, this is what kills the body, the tongue. More than anything else, the tongue. So I have a problem with that. You know, of course, I speak a lot. Y'all know that. Uh, but what what is what's the problem? Isn't so much what I speak. It's what I, it, it is that I speak. It's what I speak. And I, I have a little bit of a problem with that because when I grew up as a young boy, I'm, I'm a third out of four boys. I always admired my oldest brother. 
because my brother Mike has a very quick wit. And I had heard everybody praise his quick wit. You know, and that's all those times, boy, he's such a, he's so clever. He's so quick, you know. And I thought, man, I want to be clever. I want to be quick. And I'm not going to say I prayed for it, but I mean, I, I, I want to be quick like that. I want to, I want to have that sense of humor that Mike has because he's just so good at it. Uh, somehow Mike, and I'll give him some credit for this, uh, he actually has the ability to be quick with his wit and not be biting with his wit. I haven't managed that as well as he does. Uh, he's kind of... His quick wit isn't hurting as much as mine does. I get sarcastic with mine. Um, and so we had a, let me give you an example of this. Uh, Mike and I had a little kind of thing that we had happen on Christmas. I don't know where this is going. Okay. Um, this past Christmas. This is, you won't be able to read that, but I'll, I'll tell you what it says. Uh, so early morning, Christmas morning, uh, all the boys, you know, all the four boys get together to text each other because, you know, this is what I do now on Christmas. Merry Christmas through text. Uh, so Tim says, Merry Christmas to all. And Mike tells us, hey, just so you know, I bought you all a subscription to Charisma Magazine this year for your Christmas gift, which is great. And then Tim asks his question here. He says, did everybody sing Hark the Herald Angels? Because we have a tradition in our family, I don't know how long it's been going on, that the Christmas begins when the head of the house sings Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Now, when you're kids, you actually have to stay in your room until it until that happens, they can come out, right? Uh, and all of us have kept the tradition alive, you know, to honor the, the, whoever started this. I have no idea who started it, but we honor this. And, and so Tim asked, did everybody do that today? And uh, I text out, said, well, yeah, but it changed a little bit for us because this is a screenshot down here. Uh, somebody, if you remember, it was a snowy day that day. Somebody right in front of our house driving a truck blew a tire right in front of our house. And at first we thought he was just stuck on the ice, you know, but he was out and Victoria's running, waking everybody up. We need to get out there and help that guy. So Stas gets dressed real fast and gets out there. And so he's out. And I go off for a little while and it's blown tire. They're getting everything done. So I come back up because there's nothing I can do, you know. And this is it's kind of a one-man job and there's two men there already. So I come back upstairs and I take the picture. Uh, and so I, I said, you know, this is what happened here. And Mike really came back fast. Says, hey, Stas is great. Nice of you to stay up on the porch and take the picture. You know, so. Uh, so I absolutely knew that was going to happen when I said, I, whenever I post, oh, there, this is, I know, and I knew it was going to be Mike, you know, so the first thing there was that, so I simply came back, well, somebody had to post it on Facebook, you know, uh, and so then he says this, well, yeah, he, this is in quotes, yeah, honey, I broke down in front of the pastor's house, and he was so nice to shout encouraging words from the distance, well, this other guy came and helped me change the tire, I think there should be a Bible story about that, you know, this is, this is my brother Mike, right, um, but I don't, I don't even care, because I'm enjoying it, he's a funny guy. I said, look, first off, I did not shout anything. Secondly, you think I was on the porch. I took that through the living room window. It was cold out there. <laughs> Didn't you see the snow? And uh, so, you know, he picks up on that and says, I'm on my way home now, honey, because the, uh, the nice thoughts the pastor had about me from inside his warm house. <laughs> I said, I'm a pastor. I prayed for them, of course. I mean, I don't want to take too much of the credit, but the prayers of a righteous man, you know, it does avail much. And so he says, you know, Mark, I just extend your Charisma Magazine subscription to another year. <laughs> all right. This goes on all the time in our house. This is like constant. Uh, and I enjoy it. And when it works right and no one's getting offended, it's fun. Uh, and I don't know if, if uh, those of you, some of you have kind of been around for a while, you may have heard every time this guy comes up, this is Stephen Furtick, he's referred to as Diane's second favorite pastor. 
the preacher. And that's a little joke, right? Because when Diane was coming with uh, Victoria, me, and, and Emily up to, up to Sights and Sounds, we were talking about different things. We were mentioning pastors. Most of them he, she didn't know, preachers, you know. And uh, so then I mentioned Stephen Furtick, and, and Diane said, oh, I like him. And just the way she said it, I, I, I pretended to get my feelings hurt. Oh, you like him, huh? So, so I started saying, I started calling him her favorite preacher, right? And I just kind of kid her. Fortunately, Diane didn't get offended. Uh, I didn't know if she would or not. I didn't think about it. I just did it. And then after one particular sermon, she sent me a text message that said, he's now my second favorite preacher. I really like that sermon. Okay, so, so now this has become part of the lore of Spirit Chapel. You know, whenever we talk about Stephen Furtick, uh, he's Diane's second favorite preacher, right? Well, like, it's really good that she rolled with that because she could have gotten offended by that pretty easily. And I've had situations like that. So I want, I want to put you in this situation. Suppose English wasn't your first language, hypothetically, right? Suppose you said something um, and you really wanted an answer to it, but maybe your English wasn't completely precise. It was precise enough that I knew what you meant, but it wasn't precise enough that I couldn't take it, turn it out of context, and make a joke out of it. Imagine how frustrating that might get to you and start picturing Victoria's life, right? Because this happens all the time. Shortly after she came here, she would say, man, your jokes are hard. You know, they're really hard. It took her a long while. And my, my thought was always, well, you know, come on. Roll with it. This is, this is fun. This is just humor. But it wasn't humor to her, right? And so um, I was really trying to kind of trying to rectify that a little bit. I was trying to reconcile it with God because, you know, I, he, I felt like he was convicting me about my sharp tongue that sometimes cause problems with, you know, the most important person in my life. And, and um, I thought, well, you know, she just needs, God, could you just give her a better sense of humor? That's what we need. If you would just give her a better sense of humor to see the funny things, the things would be better. And, you know, I just felt like he was telling me, I, I need you. And I thought, but, but God is who I am. You know, it's kind of a part of my identity for many, many years. And, and sometimes it's fun, you know. And, and I, I don't really want to not have a quick wit. I, I want to try to have a quicker wit. You know, I, I want more. I don't want less. You're telling me to stop this? I'm going to become boring. You know, I don't want to become boring. And I was here here in the church, and we were having, God and I were having this discussion during the praise service. Weird things go on in my mind. And I'm actually praying about it a little bit. I'm saying, God, I, I don't know if I want to do that. You know, you're telling me that I shouldn't do that. And God spoke to me and said this, you can be quick-witted, but you need to slow your tongue, son. And I thought, oh, okay. In other words, don't say everything you think. <laughs> like, wow, what a thought, what a concept that is. But put a gate, a filter? Yes. Slow your tongue. Stop it. It's too much. Back off. It can hurt people's feelings without meaning to. It might seem like a small thing, right? But it's not a small thing because I'm supposed to be a pastor. I'm supposed to be building people up, not tearing them down. You know, Victoria should know she could come to me and say anything, and I'm not going to turn it on her and make a joke out of it. You know, I, I should be better than that. Now, this is a small thing. That's why I shared it. I'm not as embarrassed about this as some of my bigger stuff. But God is working constantly to remove this stuff, this dung, out of my life. And I kind of stop fighting him on it and saying, you know what, God? You're right. I don't ever want to get to the point where I'm hurting people. That's, that's not my intention. So I need to slow my tongue. 
and it's hard. You know, I've done a better job of it, and I don't always do a great job of it, but I'm trying. I'm trying to do a much better job of that. Just like think, think, think before I say, say, say. It's so hard sometimes. It's right there, you know. Uh, but um, and I grew up, with, you know, three brothers, so we were, you know, you you had to fight to live, and we fought verbally as much as anything in our family. But so it is something that I'm trying to work through. Anyway, so uh, one more one more verse here from Isaiah. We'll be done. So, this is Isaiah speaking when he sees the glory of God. He says, Woe to me! I'm undone. I am a man of unclean lips. This verse came to me. That's my problem. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of the hosts. As I see now who God is. And I see this isn't good enough anymore. And then one of the angels flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken from, uh, with the tongs from the altar. So he took this from the altar of God and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips so your iniquity is taken away and your sin has been purged. What God's saying is, I'll take it away. If you give it to me, will you give it to me? Because if, if you give it to me, I'll take that away. But if you keep holding on to it, I can't. I will burn it out of your mouth. Don't worry. I can make it clean. I can make what comes out of there clean. But you've got to give it to me. We have to go to the dung gate and fling stuff as far from us as we can possibly throw it. We've got to stop holding on to it. We've got to say, well, this is okay. We need to say, if it's dung, it goes. You know, it's got to go. We have to get it all out of our life because we will never be whole while we continue to drink poison. Would you all please pray with me?